Uh, we started this sermon series at the beginning of the year, and we find ourselves here at a uh, breaking point in the story um, where we have now uh, walked all the way through the, the creation story, the fall. We've, we've seen the flood. Uh, we're going to consider the Tower of Babel, the descendants of Shem, and then uh, the story of Genesis naturally takes a break here in chapter 12. And so we too are going to take a pause in this uh, sermon series. Uh, so next week, Jacob Gwynn, who is one of our members, he's also an Air Force chaplain who is sponsored by the North American Mission Board, will be preaching next Sunday. Uh, on um, the following Sunday, which will be Easter Sunday, we will begin a sermon series through First and Second Thessalonians. And so as the story pauses here for a moment, uh, between 11 and 12, we too will take a pause and we'll pick up in chapter 12 in the summer. And so uh, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you know where we've come to today primarily as we consider the Tower of Babel as there's uh, the, the confusion of languages throughout the world. Uh, languages are a fascinating thing. Uh, as it stands right now in the world that we live in, there are some 6,500 languages represented throughout the world. Some of them are dying away. Some of them are more prominent than others. Uh, and when you consider that vast number of languages, 6,500, the average American only speaks one language. Uh, this is not the norm for the rest of the world. In our time overseas, we met people who could speak 12 languages, uh, people who had little to no education throughout their life, even as a child who could speak 12 languages. And even someone who can speak 12 languages barely begins to scratch the surface of the number of languages that are represented in the world. If you've ever tried to learn another language, you know it is a very humbling experience, and I think there's a reason for this. Every time we open our mouths and speak, we give evidence to our defiance against the holy God and our brokenness as humanity. As we see the outworking of the story here and the judgment that comes on the people as God disperses them throughout the world, uh, and in that, he confuses their languages. And yet, God's good will is served through the defiance and brokenness of men. If you would read with me, beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. If we consider first this morning the defiance of humanity against a holy God, we see here in these opening verses that the will of God is not frustrated by the defiance of men. 
Right away in verse 1, there's a question that we need to answer there when it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words or the same vocabulary. And you might be thinking to yourself, just last week in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, didn't the writer mention several times that there are different languages represented among the tribes and tongues of the world? And so why is it now that that's already been established in the story that we go back to say that there was only one language in the earth in these days? Well, chapters 10 and 11 are not necessarily in chronological order, but they are arranged more thematically. Uh, And potentially the writer is making a point here for us in these first four verses in particular uh, of the absurdity of what it is that man is trying to do. Because in the context, we all know already that there are multiple languages throughout the earth. And so what we see them trying to accomplish in and of themselves in verses 1 through 4 is quite absurd. In this, we see that people are migrating eastward from the east. We see this continued movement away from the garden paradise where in chapter 3, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and they move eastward, further away from uh, fellowship with God and relationship with God. And in these uh, first four verses in particular, we see four let us phrases You can see it there for yourself in the text. Verse 3, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. The verb there, burn, also carries with it the idea of let us. So we have let us make bricks, let us burn them thoroughly. Then verse 4, you see the third and fourth one. Come, let us build. And then finally, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. The first two phrases are very similar in what they're communicating here. Let us uh, make bricks Let us burn them. They have found success in creating um, this this brick, this, this object that can be used to build up society. It's a great advancement in society. And not only have they found that the bricks can be made, but they can stack them and they can essentially glue them together with concrete, with bitumen, and, and it will build up into a city and into a tower. And this is what the third let us phrase says, that very fact that they want to build for themselves a city and a tower. And notice what it says about this tower that their desire is for its tops, top to be in the heavens. The fourth let us phrase, though, really gets to the heart of the passage when they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Interestingly, the first time the word make is used in verse 3, come let us make bricks, that word in the Hebrew is only used for brick making. And so it literally says, let us brick bricks. But the word for make here in verse 4 is not related to bricks, but rather it speaks to wanting to assign something, assign fame to ourselves. We want to make a great name for ourselves, the people say. And so the first three let us phrases, let us make bricks, let us burn them, let us build are really just the practical outworking of the main problem in the passage. The issue here is not a building or a tower. The issue here is the heart of man. Pride and selfishness, wanting to make much of self. And this is really the heart of sin. We saw this in the garden. The temptation that was presented before Eve is that you will be like God. This is the heart of the sin problem. Pride, a desire to make much of self, to be like God. 
But their desire to build the city is not just rooted in pride, but it's also rooted in fear and anxiousness. Notice what it goes on to say there in verse 4. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They realize that there's value to be had in numbers and being together. That they will be more successful and find more fame when they are together rather than dispersed. And so we see here a desire for for fame, but also a, a, a fear of the future. Both of these really are at the heart of every man, every culture, every society that's ever existed on the face of the earth. We want security. We want to be established, whether it's through our own fame or, or planning for the future. But ultimately, these are false, a false sense of security, a false sense of security in self, a false sense of security and numbers and wealth and grandeur. And so notice, particularly in the first four verses, the emphasis on self and us. Verse 2, they found. Verse 3, they said, come let us, come let us burn and make. They had. Verse 4, they said, come let us build, lest we. The focus is on self. And God, in his uh, observing the situation in verse 6, echoes this. They are one people. They have one language. They will do. They will purpose. Nothing will be impossible for them. This is selfishness and pride on full display. Nothing to do with God, but only looking to make much of self, to glorify self. In the Christian life, we are still prone to this temptation of self-glorification and and fear and anxiety. We are prone to think that making much of self through fame and success will somehow improve our lives and give us the security that we so long for in this life, whether it's celebrity. Even pastors are tempted in this to be a celebrity pastor. How many followers do I have on YouTube? How many people are listening to my podcast? The world is teaching us, friends, what do people think of me? Each and every day we are expected to answer this question, but the question we should be asking as the people of God is how can I make much of Christ in every area of my life, not self? Secondly, we are prone to this frustration or this anxiety over our circumstances about the future, and we try to do things in our own power, in our parenting, in our relationship with our spouse, in our career as the church. When we don't see the results that we want to see numerically as the church, we are prone to try to do things in our own power with business methods and business models to bring about some sort of fabricated growth. We do this with our sin. We are frustrated with sin in our lives and and we we try to fight the fight in and of ourselves. And the truth before us this morning is those who are in Christ is that very thing. We are in Christ. You are secure in him and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Rest in the promises of God. Know Christ. Submit to his ways. In verse 5, though, we see God intervening on behalf of the situation, and we see a really important phrase here in the whole of the passage. The Lord came down to see. 
Now, this is anthropomorphic language, meaning the writer is using human language and human terms to communicate something about God. God does not need to move from one place to another to see. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He's all-knowing. He is ever-present. He doesn't have to come down to intervene, but what the writer is communicating here is two really important things. First, we see here God's interest and participation in his creation. Listen, we do not serve a distant, far-off God. He has come near to us. He condescends. He intervenes on our behalf. He sees and he knows all things. But secondly, the writer is communicating here something quite comical. As we look again to the tower that apparently has its tops in the heavens and God has to come down just to see it. Man standing on the ground looks up to this tower and says, wow, this is the tallest thing I've ever seen. And we did that and God can't even see it from his throne. He has to come down. He has to condescend to see it. One commentator said this, no matter how high they towered, the Lord still had to descend to see it. Their efforts to make a great name for themselves are comical compared to the grandness of God. Even the tallest tower on earth in our day stands like the tip of a needle compared to the gloriousness of Creator God. And so in verse 6, we see God's observation on the situation, and he sees that they are united and that they will most definitely succeed in their endeavor. And some will say, well, this is God. He's jealous. He's, he's jealous that the people are finding success apart from him. No, this is not that God is jealous, but rather that the people are not submitting to his good and perfect ways. Remember what God has said to them over and over again. What? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the people come to Shinar and they settle there and they say, no, you know what? We like this spot. We're going to make a name for ourselves here. And so God intervenes. And in verse 7 it says, come, let us go down. This is the fifth of the let us phrases that we see here. We contrast that with the first four where man says, here's what we're doing, and yet here God says, here's what will happen. And we're reminded of Proverbs 19.21 that says, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do we live our lives through that lens that everything that happens in this life, even the most minuscule portion of our day, happens according to the good purposes of God? We tend to plan. And at any given moment of any given day, there is an obstacle that presents itself and frustrates our plan. And when we come to that moment, is our response immediately, well, this is God's good purpose. Or is it frustration or anger that something has inter interfered with your plans for the day when you find yourself stranded on the side of 1604 on a 100-degree weather day and your kids are crying in the car and you've got a flat tire? Is your immediate response God's good purpose? In the midst of a busy work week, sickness hits your home. Is your response in that this is God's good purpose? Or you or making a pizza for the family and you go to pull it out of the oven and as you do so, the pizza in slow motion slides off the pan and overturns upside down in your oven is your immediate response, this is God's good purpose. 
the loss of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis. Is your response, God's good purpose. We tend to see the setbacks on any given day as roadblocks to our plans, but may we be people who learn to see setbacks and suffering and hardships of life as God's good purpose for us. I want to turn our attention back to the phrase there in verse 7. It says there, come, let us. This is God speaking. This is Trinitarian language. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see in the beginning of the passage men trying to work together to attain unity. And when God intervenes, the Godhead we see is working in the same perfect unity that it has since before time began. And so it tells us here that God confuses their language and disperses them over the face of the earth. The punishment here is not the destruction of the city. Rather, the punishment is the destruction of their language and being dispersed throughout the world. If you see it there in the text, it's, both of these are repeated twice. Verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them. And then it repeats that in verse 9. The Lord confused the language of all the earth and the Lord dispersed them. This is God working. I think we tend to think that the reason they dispersed over the earth was because their languages were confused and they couldn't live together anymore. But the text makes it clear that God was the one who did this. And the reason for this is somewhat twofold. Clearly and, and primarily, this is the judgment of God. The human race living in sin and pride, wanting to make a name for themselves, and God judges them and says, I will not give my glory to another. This is most certainly the judgment of God, but we also see in this a picture of his grace. His grace that he didn't destroy them. That the promise he made after the flood is standing True that the same pride that is represented in this passage is the same pride that we saw pre-flood. And yet God spares them. He does not destroy them. We see his grace too in the fact that he turns their rebellion into submission to his will to fill the earth. And as we saw last week that God has a desire to use borders and languages and tribes and kings in his plan of redemption. And so in the midst of his judgment, we also are reminded that he is a good father and gives us what we do not deserve. And so they left the, uh, the building of the city, or my translation says they left off building the city. And this is so ironic. Don't miss the irony here. The passage begins with all of them united. The whole earth had one language, and now it ends with them being spread over what? The whole earth. What they feared the most and tried to avoid in their own power came to pass. They were dispersed. Do you remember verse 4? Lest we be what? Dispersed over the face of the earth. And that is the very thing that happens to them. They had a purpose and a plan to secure themselves as one, but it was God's purpose that would stand and be accomplished in spite of their defiance. God will fill the earth with his glory. And so we come to the end of verse 9, and there's really no glimmer of hope here. There's no hope to be found in verse 9. 
As we've come to expect in Genesis time and time again, what we find here is confusion and dispersion over the face of the earth. And one commentator said it this way. He said, in each previous judgment, there was a gracious provision of hope. But in this judgment, there is none. It does not offer a token of grace, a promise of any blessing, a hope of salvation, or a way of escape. There's no clothing for the naked sinner. No protective mark for the fugitive. No rainbow in the dark sky. The primeval age ends with judgmental scattering and complete confusion. The blessing is not here. The world must await the new history. And we have the privilege of standing in that new history. And all we have to do is look to the next verses to see that there is indeed hope in the passage. We continued the story there in verse 10. It says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered a Pakshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered a Pakshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When our Pakshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And our Pakshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And, Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went for forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Just as we saw in the first part of the passage that the will of God will not be frustrated by the defiance of men, here we see that the will of God will not be frustrated by the brokenness of men. This is the type of genealogy we talked about last week that is linear where we see one particular father, Shem, and his line of descendants, where last week we saw more of a segmented genealogy, a table of nations. And here the pattern is quite clear. You don't have to be a scholar to notice the pattern of the genealogy over and over. It says when one particular man had lived a certain number of years, he fathered a son. And when that man had lived after he fathered that son, he lived a certain number of years and had other sons and Daughters. Something else we can notice about this genealogy compared to the genealogy we looked at in Genesis 5 is that men are living a lot shorter lifespan now. Now, there's a lot of theories and a lot of ideas as to why this is. We will not dig into that right now. But what we can trust in is that this is in God's sovereign plan. 
For whatever reason, after the flood, men live shorter periods of time. And what we see here is the line of promise. That seed that was promised to Eve in the garden that would come through her son Seth and through Noah and now through his son Shem and through Terah and all the way to Abram. This is the line of promise, the, the, the line of Messiah, the snake crusher who will come. Now there's two really important things that I think we need to see here before we move on. First is verse 30. It says, Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is a crucial detail to the story. As we will see when we pick this back up later in the summer, uh, I'm sure you're aware of what happens with Sarai and Abram. Abraham and Sarah, God promises them a nation, a son, and yet she is barren. And so we see that God, again, in the midst of the story of Genesis, must intervene on our behalf. Left to ourselves, we are nothing but broken and barren. Notice, too, though, what it says about Terah when he decided to take his family and move them. Originally, their intent was to go to the land of Canaan, but it tells us when they came to Haran, they settled there. Canaan is important to the story of Genesis. It's already been important to the story, as we saw in chapter 9. The the son of Noah, Ham, who uh, defamed his father's name and was cursed, he was the father of who? Canaan, the Canaanites. This is the the descendants of the curse. The nation and and the region and the people of Canaan will become important later in the story as well, as in chapter 12, God promises to Abram a country. And he says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Well, what is the land that he tells him? Well, look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 12. It is the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. And so Abram establishes his family there, and he has a son, Isaac, who has another son, Israel. And in God's providence, one of Israel's sons finds himself sitting next to the throne of power in Egypt in the midst of a famine that is impacting the entirety of the world. And God in his providence saves the world through Israel's one son. And yet, to save his family, Israel has to take his other 11 sons and his entire family and move them to Egypt. And they settle there and they establish there and God blesses them. But in that, they're overcome by the nation of Egypt And they are forced into slavery and they cry out to God to deliver them. And God intervenes on their behalf with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he returns them where? To Canaan, to the promised land. Here they settle in Haran. This land of promise is for the one who the covenant is made with, Abram, as we'll see in chapter 12. And we again are reminded that God will accomplish his will. And so as we come to the end of this portion of the book of Genesis, this portion of the sermon series, I want us to consider just for a moment what we considered when we began this sermon series, the story of redemption, the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We've witnessed with our own eyes creation. We've witnessed with our own eyes the fall. We've witnessed with our own eyes the promise of redemption. And we've already seen those who are justified by grace through faith in this promise of redemption. 
And there is hope throughout these first 11 chapters of Genesis of a return to the garden, a restoration to come, not by human means, but by God's grace. And as we stand in our day as the New Testament church, we celebrate the reality that redemption has come. Redemption has been accomplished at the cross. What the prophets of old looked to has been completed. As Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. He conquered sin and death once and for all at the cross. And yet we still wait for a restoration that is to come, a time that will come where there are no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. And the story of the Tower of Babel and the descendants of Shem points us and reminds us of a restoration to come. As hard as men tried in this passage to bring themselves safety and security in their own power, they gained the very thing that they tried to avoid, and the mark of that was in their languages being confused. And yet Scripture tells us on that day of restoration when we leave this earth and we are gathered around the throne of God that we will gather together with one tongue and praise our Maker for all of eternity. I want us to close by turning to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is at the end of the Old Testament. If you turn with me there, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Here in the book of Zephaniah, it speaks of this day to come. This day of restoration that we are longing for. And in this, we see the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. That word their speech means language. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, a pure language, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. It means there with one mouth in unison, shoulder to shoulder. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. There's two places in Scripture where these three words are used so closely related, language, name, and dispersed, and it's here in Zephaniah 3 and in Genesis 11. And we see this promise of a day to come where what was broken in the fall will be restored again and we will gather together people from every nation and tribe and worship around the throne as we looked at last week in one, in one language, declaring in unison the glory and the grandness of our God. Notice what he said there in verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush. Who is Cush? Well, the Cushites are the descendants of Ham, that line of the curse, the builders of Babylon. And earlier in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us that God would judge the Cushites. They shall be slain by my sword, and yet we see a remnant of them here gathered around the throne. As one commentator said, even the most distant lands upon which God has poured his wrath will have a worshiping remnant around the throne. Praise God. We see the glorious beauty of a restoration 
that is to come for those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That this time on earth is just for a moment. Our hope is not found here in ourselves, in our fame, in our security, but our hope rests in a risen King. And so I want to close by asking you this morning, are you redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior? This God-man who came near to us and lived a, a sinless life and died on a cross and rose victoriously over sin and death and ascended into heaven and one day will return. And the death that he died on that cross was in your place, taking the wrath and the punishment that you deserve for your sin in your place so that in faith you might receive what you do not deserve, the righteousness of Christ imparted to you. That you would be redeemed. That you would be put back in good standing with God. And in that and that alone, through the gospel of alone, can you know of the hope of a restoration to come a day that we long for. And so may we be faithful until that day. Let us pray.